I think she knew she had to use those visual aids to get her point across. And she's very matter of fact about it. I mean, I'm a visual learner, so I'm all about seeing something explained. Oh, same. Says the woman who (laughs) hosts a podcast about the visual arts where I can't actually show you guys anything. (laughs) Except on the show notes. On the show notes. I'm all about the show notes. She No, she really is. (laughs) I include links on the show notes to things that have been mentioned this episode. Yeah. Don't look at me like that. This shit's informative, goddammit. I'm not looking at you like anything. I love you. Whatever. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hey kids, today we're going to learn about a 19th century French painter and also about this fierce naval admiral, so that's exciting. She's a beast. You're going to love her. I don't think our content is exactly kid-appropriate. Oh! Oh my god, I actually was telling when I was driving Lyft around, I picked up a woman and her son, and her son was coming back from like getting like teeth pulled and he was maybe 11 or something and I had mentioned the podcast to mom and he was like I want to listen to it and I was like um mm, not really kid friendly hun and mom was like yeah she's saying it's for adults only but like he was like a science kid and he wanted to listen to it and like learn about these women and I was thinking we completely cut off an entire audience but also we can say fuck. We can say fuck. It's fine. And also, happy pride, y'all. Yeah, let's get gay. Let's get super gay. Uh, let's see. Two days ago was... No, it was yesterday. Yesterday was the pride festival here in Philly. And I did not go because I did not know it was yesterday. Super grumpy about that. But it looked like a lot of fun. I had a lot of friends who went. And it's always good to stay proud Or just stay an ally, whoever you are. Just realize that love is so much better than hate, no matter what you are or what you identify as. And that's that's important because, honestly, I have a friend who is transsexual, and she was waving a... She's a a trans woman, but she's also a lesbian, so she had a a flag that was both gay pride, like the rainbow, and then also the transsexual colors as well. It was a really cute flag. And it was really big, and she, like... Put it up in front of her house. The next day, somebody stole it. Well, that's shitty. Yeah. And, like, the middle of a city that's super progressive or supposed to be super progressive. So, like, it's, yeah, it just spread all of the love, people. I was just thinking between the two of us, most people will probably guess wrong as to who is 100% straight between us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of us is queer and the other one's not. One of us tells truth and the other one just tells lies. <laughs> Which one will fondle anyone regardless of their gender? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> the world will never know. Well, I knew someone who's out. I'm proud. I was ballsy as fuck for doing it in the 19th century. Jesus. Yeah, that's intense. I mean, to be fair, she had a good bit of money, so that cushioned her socially. Rosa Bonior, French. Ever heard of her? No. Of course I have, Megan. 
Oh, so I've heard. How did you know? <laughs> I think I've I've seen her paintings in art history textbooks, but she's not necessarily one of those big standout artists, you know, like Georgia O'Keeffe that people have really learned about. Right. She's fun. She's fun. We're gonna have a fun time today. Nice. All right. So the ending for last episode, last episode's artist, Christina Ramberg. It was a little fucking depressing. Little. Yeah, you should see the eyeballs that Milan is giving me right now. <laughs> Spoiler alert for those of you that haven't listened. A little sad. But, I mean, overall in her life, just good. This episode, it is not fucking depressing at all. There's one mildly depressing moment. Mildly. That's good. Mildly, yes. But it's not depressing as fuck as the ending as last week. So, I thought that's why I'd start kind of get things moving and end on a good note. Woot! Now, this artist lived to the ripe old age of 77, which is impressive because at the time, the average lifespan was about 50-ish. Yeah, it's like the 1800s. We're going to 19th century France today, and we've got fucking Napoleon, but not the one you're thinking of. We've got horses and oxen, and we've got cross-dressing, and also Buffalo Bill. Wait, can we (laughs) cross-dressing? Yeah, and Buffalo Bill. Okay, talk to me. Yeah, see, shit's getting interesting, and we're just getting started. All right, so this episode, we've got French painter Rosa Bonnior. And like you said, this is my second episode in a row in which I am not doing a sculptor. Sculptor? So like, trogdor! Like a hold the door. Later, I do think there was a period she, she could sculpt. I think she cooled it a little bit because her brother was a sculptor, so she was like, well, I'll let him have that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> That's fine. He'll do the thing. Like, he's a little younger. I kind of like this painting thing. He can do the whole sculpting thing. Now, some of the stuff in this episode might sound a little familiar because in episode nine, Dutchess Wolf Lieutenant and the woman behind the moon landing, we did a wealthy French aristocrat and sculptor. And she was born 20 years after Rosa. So politically, socially, there's like some overlap in terms of what's going on. They're around the same time. Yeah. You know, growing up, there were some really big, pivotal French moments in history that they both experienced. Did they know each other? You know what? Not that I'm aware of, but I feel like they would have been best fucking friends. I mean, probably. They're both super wealthy and super eccentric. Well, Rose is not super wealthy. I mean, in the end, she does pretty well for herself, but she does not come from a family with a ton of money, like our Anne did from episode nine. That's fair. Yeah, like a shit ton of money. But if you guys have listened, you already know. She was born in 1822 in Bordeaux, France. Area in the southwest of country, best known for its wine. But, you know, that's something France has got going for it. Her father, he was an artist, and her mother, uh, she she had studied under him. They hooked up, married in 1821. And a year later, Rosa was born, the first of four children. Four of them. Why? Actually, the family was later remarked on as the children pretty remarkable by a cousin of um, Charles Darwin. They were all creative and they were all artistic. And so um, during that time, you know, hereditary traits were very much a thing. And so that was a prime example this guy used is like, well, look, they're all from the same family. They're all artistic. Obviously, that stuff runs in the family. Mm-hmm. Really, like, yeah, or you can just, you're conditioned to it because that's the only social options you have for education. But what do I know? <laughs> Um, Nature versus nurture, whatever. Yeah, just a little thing. But uh, so like I said, her siblings were creative. I know a little bit about them. She has two brothers and a younger sister. The younger sister, Juliet, she was a fairly successful painter. She did. She focused on people's pets. Oh, That was like her niche. That's what I would do. I mean, financially, good bit of money for it. 
Mm. And then a brother, a sculptor, and then another one, an artist. Aside from the initial like, oh, hey, her siblings are like this. Didn't really get that much on them later on in life. Right. Yeah. You know, that's how it tends to go. But hey, at least we know their names. Now, they were living in a fairly rural area. And her dad was all like, hey, I'm going to leave you guys here in Bordeaux. I'm going to go to Paris because he's an artist. That's like the creative artistic capital of the continent. Right. He's like, I'm going to go for work. You guys can join me. I'll send for you once I've gotten all established. And a year goes by and Rose's mom, Sophie, she's raising four kids by herself. And she's like, fuck this. Like, I'm bringing my ass and your children to Paris for you to take care of them. Right. Because he just like ditched her, essentially. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was like, trust me. Like, it'll be fine. Well, she brings them to Paris. And his ass has become a gardener in a fucking cult. What? Yeah, okay, not not exactly like straight up a cult, but he fell into this like utopian socialist sect and he became a gardener and that's what he'd been doing for a year. Not like doing his art making. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Can you imagine how fucking pissed I'd be if I was Sophie? Oh, I'd be so mad with like four young children out in fucking rural buttfuck France. Yeah, that, that's hilarious. Oh, so yeah, a little bit of a fun start. But the upside to this experience was that this in this utopian socialist sect, it really pushed for equality, um, especially among genders. And so that paid off for their oldest child, Rosa, a little later on. Her parents enrolled her at an all-boys private school, and that gave her access to an education that very few girls of the time had. Oh. I mean, we're talking like 1830s, 1840s. Right. And when they moved into Paris, I mean, they didn't have a lot of money, like, at all. Like, very much kind of lower class. So, I mean, that's a big deal. To be able to prioritize your daughter having an education like that. Right. That's, I guess they're good parents, even the ones in a cult. Not technically a cult. Eh. But kind of like a cult, yeah. Uh, For Rosa, being the only girl in the all-boys school, for her, it was like, eh, no big deal. She said, quote, generally, I was a leader in all the games, and I did not hesitate to use my fist. She was fucking feisty. Now, it's 1833, she's 11 years old, and she gets scarlet fever. No! Yeah, which, I mean, I knew it was bad, and it could kill you, but I didn't really know what scarlet fever was. Um, Dead-ass version of strep throat. And Mm. the majority of her kids, the majority of the kids in the neighborhood died from it. Mm. She obviously did not. Nope. But a little later on, you know, her mom nursed her through it, she recovered, and then that same year, her mom died. Oh, no. Yeah. Now, some of the stuff I was reading, they're like, oh, well, her mom just died from exhaustion. No. And then I came across one source, and it, it fucking told me the truth. Tuberculosis. Stop! Yes. Yes. She died from fucking tuberculosis. Oh, my God. And if anything, she might have been exhausted from raising four small children that she was so susceptible to fucking tuberculosis. And because they were poor, her mom was buried in, like, a, a commoner's grave. Stop it. Yeah. So, okay, this is the mildly depressing part. Okay. Okay. I mean, this isn't the worst we've heard. No, by far, this is not bad. I, I mean, traumatic losing your mother at a young age. Yes. But shit gets okay. This is the worst we have to deal with it gets okay that should be it does (laughs) all right all right now after that i mean rosa you know you're a little kid that's fucking hard but she said that for her her mother was always with her after that as a guardian angel and she 
really she never forgot like the strength of her mom and the persistence and just the discipline that her mom had in like taking she was essentially taking care of the whole family herself with his wife dad her dad raymond he was left with these four kids and he's like oh shit so i mean what do you do rosa he's like yeah all right you're done going to school you got to make us some money Mm. yeah uh she was apprenticed at first to be a dressmaker and that apparently did not go well at all not her thing no no i can't imagine saying to this young girl be like okay sit down let's do a very tedious task and the little girl's like i just want to punch something and be like Mm. this might not work out for us so eventually she works under her father as an artist And for this time period, like pre-1920th century, women who became artists typically did that because their fathers were artists. Right. Women didn't have access to formal art school education, to the academy, and and to apprenticeship. So they learned it under their their dads. So that's, you know, how it went. Now, given that the dad kind of dropped him and joined a sect and become a gardener, I think he has some kind of questionable motives. (laughs) Be a bit of a butthole a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he kind of stepped it up after his wife died and, you know, ships two of his sons away to boarding school, a uh, youngest daughter, two family members. What? And, uh, yeah, but Rosa, she got to stay and eventually her siblings did come to work in the family studio as well. Um, and like I mentioned, they all became accomplished artists in their own rights from that experience. I would be mad that I got stuck with dad. She might have been. I don't know. We don't have any diaries or anything from her during this period, so I don't know. But... I mean, she was really determined to be like, no, I'm going to work under you as an artist rather than be like, no, you're going to ship me around to be like a dressmaker or hat maker. Nope. Or to do like embroidery. So I think for that, you know, kind of the best she could work with given what she had. Right. And her dad was like an all right artist, you know, kind of old fashioned a bit, did portraits. But working under him, Rosa really got to develop her eye and technique. Uh, And at the age of 18 in 1840, she exhibits her first work at the Paris Salon rabbits nibbling carrots <laughs> it's a cute little painting it's up on the show notes oh my god yeah you guys can always go up on the show notes and see stuff like uh the paintings that we're describing see pictures of the artists and scientists every episode that's so pure yeah there's just these two little bunnies oh there's some carrots oh they're just <laughs> munching on the fucking carrots <laughs> mm, this shit's tasty Early on, Rosa took an interest in depicting animals in her work, which might sound familiar because she's like Beatrix Potter. She was all about animals, and her and her siblings, they kept a collection of animals in their city apartment. Now, okay, keep in mind, they're in, they're in Paris, and they've got rabbits and birds, and there's even a fucking sheep they've got up in their apartment. Wait, a sheep? A fucking sheep, yeah. I would, if I were their fucking, like, ru- like neighbor i would be so upset well it sounds like they might be on the very top floor because every day one of her brothers would carry the sheep down five flights of stairs so they could go to a local park and the sheep could graze (laughs) oh my god uh five if the sheep couldn't go down the stairs himself I know. I imagine, like, maybe the first day the sheep, like, goes down the stairs and it's like, oh, it's not that bad. And then they go back and the sheep's like, I'm not fucking going up all those steps. No. And then after that, their strategy is like, nope, nope, you're going to carry me, little bitch. (laughs) Yeah. Victor does that sometimes. He'll, like, plant himself down and you're like, no, I'm not carrying you. I mean, Scruff's done it. Well, Scruff is, like, 20 pounds. Well, yeah, he's a little easier to wrangle than your, your, your doggy. A sheep is like 60 pounds. You know what? I, yeah, I actually don't know how big sheep can get. I imagine they can get really big. 
Really big. Really big. I, I, I'm, we're going to talk about some really big sheep later on. <laughs> yeah. So from this collection of sheep and bunnies and birdies that they've got in their apartment, Rosa and her siblings and her dad, they would all work creatively from natural observations. And through this, you know, absorbing these animals and drawing them and sketching them and doing watercolor studies of them, Rosa developed a really straightforward but unsentimental approach to animals. Mm. No, that's not. Mm. She just, she depicted them for what they are. Okay. Didn't really, like, gloss it up or anything. You know, she was someone, she stuck to the anatomy. Like, she really wanted to realistically depict what she had in front of her. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, it's hard enough doing human anatomy, but, like, the anatomy of a horse, of an oxen, of a sheep, like... It's intense. Yeah, and especially at a time where she couldn't just check out, like, animal anatomy textbooks from the library. Right. Like, you really have to be super observant, and I think this time of having all these animals in their apartment in Paris, like, really helped kind of develop that eye. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she asked her dad once, quote, couldn't I become famous just by painting animals? And he was on board. He was like, yeah, cool. And said, quote, maybe, daughter, I will fulfill my ambitions through you. Oh, Okay. Yeah, a little creepy. A little, a little bit of pressure and weirdness. Okay. What? I mean, that's it. Kind of goes, like he was an okay artist, and I think he recognized his daughter was like obviously stronger than him, and was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna vicariously live through you." And developing creative work, I mean, she'd copy masterworks from the Louvre in Paris. She'd observe, you know, her animals, mm-hmm. and she'd cross dress while making trips to the local slaughterhouse. And by the time her work was selling internationally, by the time it was viewed by the fucking Queen of England, by the time the French Empress just showed up at her studio to give her an award. Jesus Christ. It was her ambition that got her there, not her dad's. Right. Of course. Absolutely. So he did help facilitate it, but I mean, she was very much, it was on her own terms. Now, at this point, we're in the mid-1800s in France, and politically, things are kind of shifting about a little bit. If I remember correctly, you might edit it out from a certain episode. Look. (laughs) I have time constraints. These people want to learn about the Third Republic, Milana. No. No, they don't. Literally, nobody wants to know. <laughs> All you guys need to know is that in mid-1800s, things are shifting from a monarchy to a republic, and that life for working women is fucking hard. There you go. One right. sentence. I'm okay. super proud of you. <laughs> I'm trying. The shit's going to come up a little later. It will. Women are expected to marry. And, you know, while the man's the main bread earner, for women, they're, it's up to them to do everything else. Have the children, raise the children, manage the house, manage the farm, also work, bring in money. I mean, there was a lot more multitasking going on for women's part, and it was a much more strenuous experience than compared to what the guys were up to. Jesus. We have to do everything. Yeah, and on top of that, women, fucking second-class citizens. Even with the revolution of 1848, Rose is 26 at that point, France is transitioning into a republic, women are advocating for more inclusion and more rights because that's a really big political moment. Everyone's like, that's cool. Shut the fuck up and have babies and stay pretty at home. Mm. Yeah. So Rosa was like, fuck that. I mean, I would be too. Seeing firsthand through her mom just how hard it was growing up, she was like, I I don't want to put myself in that situation. So what better way to circumvent the whole patriarchy and, you know, making life as successful and independent as possible as a woman? Well, to do that, you got to get gay. (laughs) My friend, she got gay. She, I mean, we're just going to put it, she did not choose this life. That life chose her. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I don't think it was like, yeah, it would really work out best in my life. No, I feel like by the time Rosa was in the doctor's office explaining why she needed a doctor's note in order to cross-dress in public. Mm. Uh, which, fun fact, had to be renewed every six months and submitted to the police for a permit because at the time it was illegal for women to wear pants in Paris. What? That's a whole different thing I could tell you about. Her her family might have noticed that Rosa, she was queer, a little different than most girls her age. Mm-hmm. And at the age of 14 in 1836, Rosa sneaks a peek on a, a sitting her father has. He's painting a portrait of a sickly young woman uh, whose parents fear that she'll pass soon. And just like that, Rosa falls for Natalie Mikas. M-I-C-A-S. Okay, Mikas. But French. So you got to do a French accent, and I can't do one, as we've learned. So thankfully, Natalie wasn't too sickly, and she lives another 53 years, all the while, by the side of Rosa. Oh my god, they had a nice long life together? Yes. See? Okay. Mother dying of tuberculosis? Depressing. Everything else in her storyline? Not depressing. Oh, they lived happily ever after. I mean, pretty much. Now, and this is where things are getting funny, because depending on the source material, some people are like, oh, Natalie's like a mother to Rosa. Some people are like, oh, she's obviously her friend. Some sources are like, uh, she's a companion. Okay, bitch, they're gay. They're so gay. They're gay. And it's okay. And Rosa was openly gay in the 19th century in France. Like, what did you expect? I fucking balls out. There are people who are afraid of doing that in the United States today. Totally get it. Shit's fucked up. There's lots of things to be hesitant about. But I mean, imagine doing that shit like 200 years ago. Now, they were essentially married, you know, minus legal rights. They even gained approval on Natalie's father's deathbed. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. On his deathbed, he's like, I love you too and you need to be together. Oh my God. Like completely gave them his support. Yeah. That's, That's so sweet. And over the years, Natalie took on the role as, like, the supportive artist's wife, and she covered the more domestic business aspects, and mm-hmm. that allowed Rosa to really focus on her art. You need that. You need that balance. And you know what? That balance totally worked. Come 1845, Rosa's 23, and things are professionally really starting to take off. You know, she has five works accepted into the Paris Salon. She wins a third-class medal. And with that came recognition and validation of her creative work, uh, both within the the fairly stuffy academic setting and also for wealthy patrons who are buying the art, Hmm. which is always handy. Come 1847, she's 25, and a critic gives her his highest praise when he sees one of her paintings uh, depicting a sheep and says, quote, she paints like a man. What? Well, I will be damned. Highest goddamn praise he could give her. I have never been so complimented in my Gosh, life. Gosh, darn it. I didn't even think a woman could paint that. Oh, my God. Yep. My mind, it's blown. Oh, it's going to get blown a little later. Yeah. Now that same year, she sells a painting to a British buyer. And I try doing some historical, you know, currency, inflation, and converting. Roughly, the painting sells for over 60000 USD. Holy shit. Holy shit fucking deed. Yeah, she's 25 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, I mean, way for that to be a big boost to your confidence and your I sense mean, of I'm, self. I'm looking at her work. I'm it's looking. good. Her paintings are it's good. good. So she's making a shit ton of money. She's 25 years old, and her paintings are, to say the least, they're very well received. Mm-hmm. Now, with that political shift in France to a republic, 
Art-wise, like, no one wants stuffy art about royalty or aristocrats. Uh, Religious subject matter, eh, not really a big focus anymore. But the working lives of the peasants are absolutely glorified. You know, all these factories in our cities and like, oh, let's really romanticize, like, living out and having a farm. Like, the simpler, you know, life. And, you know, for Rosa, she wasn't really glorifying anything. For her, her interests were all about the animals and very much less so the people okay. but her like well-crafted anatomically crooked paintings of farm animals like cows and sheep and oxen it really appeals to the upper classes romanticism of the, this common life this simpler life and i think she was probably really okay with it because it was making her like a shit ton of money right yeah i want to know how much work she put in these i'm looking at them they're pretty intense the level of the work she's able to do and the amount over her lifetime, I feel like it's a little different compared to other people because she chose not to have children. And so when you're when you're not ha- physically having kids, when you're not raising children, when all the energy isn't diverted to that, you have so much more time in the studio. Not to say you can't do both, but she was able to really focus herself. And I feel like this is why her work was regarded a little differently because she was able to put more time and, and that gave her an advantage over women who were raising children and trying to be painters at the same time. Right. in the same the same era right i mean and that's still you know a discrepancy today between you know men artists and female artists that a lot of the times it's mommy taking care of the kids and not daddy who's doing it but i mean her works are really great the sense of color you know you look at it and it's it, they're so vibrant and keep in mind she's she's doing this in you know 1860s like she can't take a picture and go back to her studio she's painting from life from memory from her own skill of like anatomy and light oh i didn't even think about that she doesn't have a picture no oh my god all from observation wow yeah, so her shit's good. Her shit's good. And it's making her money, which she's very much okay with. So from that that large British purchase that she got money from, she was commissioned by the French government to make a painting about plowing. Hmm. I know. Again, it's a throwback to like the common people and common life. And so that the, that's what they were going for. And she was oh. like, all right, cool. Cooler when they gave her over 20 grand for it. Oh my God. Yeah, good shit. Ah. Uh. And the painting that came from that, it's one of her most well-known, it's in the show notes, um, Plowing in the Nivernas. And I probably mispronounced that, and I am sorry. It's French. (laughs) It's French. But it really cemented her reputation and kind of guaranteed a lifelong financial security from her work. Right. Now, with the following government and private commissions for her, you know, these fairly bucolic realism paintings... Um, she didn't need to show in the Paris salon anymore. So when she did step back into it in 1853 at the age of 31, it was to display a masterpiece, the Horse Fair. Oh. And this painting, it's gigantic. It's almost 16 feet wide. That's, wait, like, what? Why? Yeah. And it's the result of two years of her studying horses. And the painting's comprised of a scene of horses at the market up for sale it's got this amazing energy to it. A critic described it, quote, saying, one can almost hear the shouting and the snorting and feel the ground shake under the salt of the hooves. Oh, my God. Everyone in the salon was like, holy shit. And then double holy shit when they found out it was a woman who painted it. And it was so good. They gave it a special designation of fucking outstanding. That's unreal. Maybe not fucking outstanding. That'd be really fun, a little ribbon that's just like, this is so good. It's fucking outstanding. <laughs> I'd take Wait. that. That'd be fun to put on my CV. Now, I mean, like we've, you know, kind of mentioned Rosa. She's in the studio. That's where she's spending her time. She's killing it in her paintings. Natalie was killing it in the marketing. And with the universal acclaim over the horse fair, 
they were looking to sell it and make some money. Right. And they did offer it to Rose's hometown of Bordeaux for a special low rate. And the city was all like, nah, we're good. Hmm. Yeah. They're like, you know, for a woman artist, the work's too expensive. We're not going to buy it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Not that the work in general was expensive, but they like totally dissed it because a woman did it. Well, a Belgian collector, a Ernest Gambart, he buys it. Okay. And with his connections to, you know, the whole rising industrial elite going on at the time, you know, with this, with these connections, histor- historians really credit him with her continued popularity of Rose's art. His connections got her painting in front of the goddamn Queen of England. Wow. Yeah, and she liked it so much. She was like, I want the public to be able to see her work. Because it's good stuff. It, yeah, it is. And a year after the painting is shown in England, Rosa and Natalie visit the country as well, where they get to meet contemporary animal painters, you know, usually men. Mm-hmm. They visit the highlands of Scotland and some of the, like, the really big, you know, Scottish sheep and animals they saw there. They fucking shift it back to their home in France so they could be studied at home. What? They're like, I want this one and this one and this one too. Yeah, no, legit. Like, so for a few years, that was like her primary source of inspiration was her experience in Scotland. That's amazing. Now, by this time, Rosa and Natalie, they've made such good money off of the paintings that they just buy themselves a country chateau where they can just keep whatever animals Rosa fancies. She's got her studio space. And some of the animals include fucking three Mustang horses just sent from an American fan. That's the dream. And... And Rosa can go hunting in the local woods by special permit from the fucking emperor of France. What? Yeah. Because she was a woman, she needed a special permit? No, as in the emperor liked her work so much. He was like, yeah, you can fucking hunt wherever you want. I like you. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, the art collector, Ernest, he's not content with the English audience. So he sends her painting to the United States. And in 1857, she's 35 years old, it arrives in New York City for the start of a three-year tour of the country. And he also, he sells print rights. So newspaper publishing companies, they take advantage of that. They print special editions of the painting. And it becomes one of the most popular and well-known paintings in North America in the mid-1800s. And eventually, the giant painting gets sold to a Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was at the time the wealthiest man in America. And then he donated it to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Oh, cool. Yeah, so how's that for the city of Bordeaux to be like, nah, we're good, and fucking Mr. Vanderbilt buys that shit up. Like, I that, that must have felt really good for her to be like, fuck you guys. Vindication. Yep. Now come the 1860s and there are some attitudes that are starting to change for Rosa. She's a woman known for riding horses astride. She goes smoking with the men after dinner, keeps her hair short, she wears pants, and she lives with a woman. People are kind of starting to give her shit for it. And she's got one famous comment, quote, the fact is, in the way of males, I only like the bulls I paint. And that really didn't help for maintaining, like, the facade of social normalcy. But to be fair, I think Rosa, she didn't really give a fuck about that. No. I mean, this is a woman who has fucking lions on her property. She was tired of going to the zoo to see them, so she just had two of them brought to her house. She just, she just bought two lions. Yeah. She, that's they had a shit ton of animals on their property. Those lions didn't kill her? I, I, I don't know what type of setup they have. It doesn't really... The research I did, they don't go into the specifics of it, but I thought that was fucking amazing. Jesus. 
Yeah, so during this period, uh, Rosa and Natalie, they're, they're kind of hosting fewer guests at their homes. But Rosa's doing good. I mean, she has a shit ton of foreign commissions, mostly from a British, you know, kind of audience. So they, they've got money coming in. They're doing okay. Mm-hmm. And then one day when she's 43 in 1865, the Empress shows up at her studio. Just randomly? Yeah, just like the last Empress of France, wife to Napoleon III. Mm. And it's like, hey, Rosa, what's up? I'm going to give you the cross of the Legion of Honor. Oh, by the way, you're the first woman to ever get this. What? Yeah, I shit you not. Like, she was surprised. She was just in her studio one day, apparently, and there was like, no one kind of gave her a heads up and just the Empress just walks in. Oh, my God. I know. I know. And this is, again, like... When her mother passed away, she was put in a common grave because the family was poor. She's come a very long way. Yeah. So despite, you know, being personally delivered this honor by the empress, favor in the French upper class was kind of wilting for Rosa. With the connections of her art dealer, Ernest, um, and with her art primarily going to, you know, English buyers, you know, historically, we've got a little tension between the French and the English. Right. Yeah. One, one critic called her by an English title instead of French, and said, quote, Since her adoption by the English, who have made her fortune, we have seen none of her paintings in the French exhibitions and not even in sales. Jesus. Yeah, way to lay down some shade. Like, no, she's fucking doing good. She's making enough money. She doesn't have to do that. Now, even with the French high public losing interest in her, mm-hmm. um, and our, like creatively, you know, audience performing more impressionistic painters, Rosa was going strong. But then at the age of 67 in 1889, her partner Natalie did pass away. Aww. Yeah. But one thing that did help her through the loss was Buffalo Bill. Continue. (laughs) I know. It's really fucking random. So the same year that Natalie passed away, 1889, Buffalo Bill brought his tour, Exposition of the Wild West, to Paris for seven months. And Rosa liked America. She liked horses. So how could she, like, not stop in and see what was going on? Right. You know, there's there's fights and there's horse chases and there's guns and there's Indians and there's fucking sharpshooters. And she was really enthralled. I mean, she visited the camp over and over, making paintings and sketches of both the animals and the performers. She had been granted complete access by Buffalo Bill Cody himself. Oh, my God. Yeah. He knew who she was before or after. Like, did he know her when she like came in or did she just keep coming back and he was like all right do this i imagine because her work was so well known in america with all those new pa- newspapers like doing prints of right. her big painting right it was really saturated in the american market and like i said it was one of it was like the most well-known painting during that time in north america oh, okay um so her reputation very much preceded her hmm. and when you think of it they're both like cowboys of sorts um so right. i think that it's just a lot of things they had in common and so uh eventually she does a painting of him and he he absolutely fucking loved it it was his favorite thing he sent it to his wife she was over in nebraska mailed it home and then later on he found out that his house was burning oh no yeah he told his wife like i don't care what happens save the rosa bonaire and leave everything else yeah just save the goddamn painting it's you know a painting of him on a horse on his favorite horse and he's kind of looking to the side and the horse is dead front right which is pretty cool because rosa did a lot of animals not so much people right not so much what she was really about and later that same year that she's making friends with fucking buffalo bill the american who had sent those mustang horses Mm -hmm. a john arbuckle he wanted to come and meet her you know, because again, her reputation precedes herself, especially to an American audience. So he grabs a translator, goes to meet her, and she's like, here, nice to meet you. I'm going to seduce your translator. Seduce you. Oh, my God. 
Why? And Anna Klump. Not a super sexy last name. No. But Anna was a portrait painter and also a landscape painter as well. Uh, She was one of four daughters and they were born to a very badass mom. Their dad did really well in real estate and the mom was like, all right, that's cool. I'm going to take my daughters to Switzerland where they're going to get a really good private education. She just like up and left him. (laughs) Yeah. And Rosa, she was really happy with Anna. I mean, it was short. Rosa was Mm -hmm. 34 years older than Anna. And a year after they met, she did pass away dying of pneumonia in 1899 at the age of 77. Oh, no. Yeah. And Rosa left her entire estate to Anna. And later on, Anna writes a biography of Rosa published nine years after her passing. How much are you going to learn about a person in a year of, like, knowing him to write a a biography? I mean, but imagine in that year you've completely fallen head over heels for them. And then before you know it, they're gone. I don't I don't know what that's like, but I imagine it was sad. What better way to really kind of get closure, I imagine, than learning more about them? Talking to their oh, friends and their collectors yeah. and, you know, any family members. And to be like, who is this person that I really love that I didn't get to spend that much time with? Right. And oh. so I imagine doing that, you, you know, can help you feel closer to them as you're kind of, you know, figuring out and maybe finding answers to these questions you have about them. Mm. But either way, you know, she wrote about Rosa. And uh, when she did pass away quite some years later, she joined not only Rosa, but Natalie as well in a very fancy Paris cemetery, the Paris Lachise, where they all they all reside together, grave by grave. Aww. Yeah. And I mean, overall, I think Rosa was just really remarkable and everything she was able to achieve given the era that she was in. And the fact that she was not only like openly lesbian, but also completely financially independent i mean those are two really big deals in the 1800s yeah really hard to do yeah really hard to do now (laughs) i I mean very much so i mean she came from a lower class family and she built her wealth through her own skill and marketing you know with her work and with natalie's work and with the, the network they were able to you know socially build and like i mentioned like her career it's more in line with male artists of the day given because she wasn't dealing with the additional responsibilities of having a family and raising children, which kind of changed things. So I think, you know, her work is really good. Like you were saying, it's really tightly detailed and tightly rendered. And I I really appreciate the craftsmanship that went into it. And I think she's a pretty cool person. And I think she probably would have been fucking best friends with our duchess that we did in episode nine. Right. I think, yeah, I think they would, they would have got along very nicely. I mean, especially for a woman who fucking just has two lions on her farm. Yeah. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like a that sounds like a wolf duchess move, honestly. Oh, fucking for sure. Yeah, they can go hunting together. <laughs> yeah, so that's Rosa Bagnor, uh 19th century French painter of animals. Oh. Yeah, that's what I got. I I'm I'm happy. This this is a happy episode. Yeah, last episode on my end ended a little bit of a depressing note. So yeah. I wanted things to uh, to do pretty good. So here we are. All right. Well, I also have a badass of a woman. Yeah. I'm really curious to find out about your Navy Admiral. <laughs> Technically, it's a Navy Rear Admiral. Okay. I don't know the difference. <gasps> Did she keep pet sharks? No. Oh. No, no. About to say, that's like the next badass thing from keeping pet lines. Yeah. Oh, no, she was she's a little more like she was a mathematician. She didn't have time for like things like that or like silly things like that. I imagine not a lot of like going outside when you're a mathematician. Well, 
No, it's a lot of like speaking and classes and like spending time with computers. And well, she was a computer like engineer. So her name was Admiral Grace Hopper. And she was actually suggested to me by a friend of mine who just binge listened like eight of our episodes. Oh, that's nice. In like a week and a half. So, or maybe two weeks. I don't really know how long it's been since he started listening to it. But he was like, he's a computer person. So he was like, just just do her. You're going to like her. I'm like, okay. So I looked her up. And she was a queen. With a, with a K. Capital K. W-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-N. So more just like, queen! I want a sticker of your face making that, that look. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit like uh like Cartman in South Park with the eyes just gonna like your face all scrunched up. <laughs> anyway, yeah, she was a queen and she was born a Grace Brewster Murray in New York City in nineteen oh six, so early twentieth century. Her parents' names were uh, Walter Fletcher Murray and Mary Campbell Van Horn. She was the oldest of three children, and she had, like, one... She was so one sister and one brother, and I didn't get the sibling names, unfortunately. Ugh. I know. As far, like, as far as, like, what she was like when she was younger, she was apparently a really curious kid. So there was this particular anecdote so she was seven at the time her mom leaves her unattended and she's like i want to know how this clock works so she pulls one apart and then panics because she doesn't know how to put one together and she was going to put the first one together after she was done because she didn't want to like get in trouble so she like grabs another clock and then pulls it apart and then panics again because there was this one thing she didn't get and now she's got two clocks that are undone and she still doesn't know how to put together So this continues until mom finds her. She has ripped apart seven alarm clocks. I just, oh my God. I can't just imagine asking a little girl and being like, okay, so after the first one, what'd you think? (laughs) Okay. Okay, after the second one, okay. Now, by the time you get to the seventh one, it didn't occur to you that maybe you should reevaluate those first two that you still couldn't, okay. All right, all right. So mom is like, uh, mm, takes the alarm clocks away. She leaves one so that she can continue to learn. Yeah. Like, this is your clock. Like, I'm gonna figure try this to... out and you can have the other six. <laughs> it was just like, okay. So that's that's the kind of girl she was. So she's just determined and super curious and was like, I want to pull this apart. And that's exactly what she did. So fast forward to when she's 16. She was looking into early enrollment into Vassar College, but she gets rejected because her Latin scores were too low. Ugh, that's a fucking bitch. That's, I mean, same, I guess. I don't know. I mean, especially when you want to go for something that's not related to Latin at all. Yeah, but like, it was like 1900s, so you had to know Latin. Yeah. Next year, she's 17. She gets accepted at Vassar to study mathematics and physics. She graduates Phi Beta Kappa in 1927, and then she moves on to Yale University to get her master's degree in 1930, and then on to her PhD, also at Yale, in mathematics in 1934. Oh, nice. Yeah, so she's like, 
banging shit out. Somewhere in between all that, she had time to marry a New York professor named Vincent Foster Hopper in 1930. They were together for 15 years. Uh, I didn't see any kids that I know. I think they just didn't have any kids. She divorced him 15 years later and she didn't remarry. I think they just had differences and she was just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So yeah, but that's like, what, 1940s, early 50s? I mean, that's a big deal to just be like, no, we're divorcing. Yeah, like, I'm good. Like, socially, that was, like, not normal, like, at all. Especially for a woman to right. initiate things. And she refused to remarry. She just didn't jump from another from one guy to another guy. She's like, I'm going to be me. This is fine. Uh, and she divorced. Yeah, she divorced him in 1945. 1941, we're backtracking a few years. Pearl Harbor happens. And something clicks inside of her. And she's like, yo, I need to serve my country. And she tries to enlist in the Navy. So there are three problems there. The first one is that she was 34 years old. So that's it's kind of old to get into the Navy. The second problem was that she was 15 pounds lighter than what was acceptable for someone of her height. And the final issue is that her work as a math professor was too important in the eyes of the military to take her away from it. Because it's the middle of war. We need to educate. And we need to, like, put forth efforts to advance science and math. Yeah. But just like she wouldn't let Vassar tell her no, she wasn't about to let the Navy tell her what to do with her life. So she took a leave of absence from Vassar and with an exemption enlisted in WAVES, which was an acronym for Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. And basically it was the woman's branch of the Naval Reserves. So she she joins as an ensign, which I guess is like a like one of the first ranks in the Navy. I'm not familiar with Navy ranks. The thing is... There's a quote here. She says, It had to be the Navy. I had a great-grandfather that was in the Navy. Besides, I like wearing blue. (laughs) Ah, nice. So she keeps going. And then 1944, she gets promoted to lieutenant. She reports at the Bureau of Ordnance Computation Project at Harvard University. And the project she would be a part of is the one that developed the Mark I computer, which was a general-purpose electromechanical computer that was used in the war effort during the last part of World War II. So one of its biggest contributions was the ability to run a program that would study the implosion of the impending first atomic bomb. Not the best use of science... But it also is arguably the end to a war. Yeah. Yeah, it's important. It's just, we're not getting into that. Yeah, not the warm and fuzzies. Not the warm and fuzzies. The head professor was Howard H. Aiken, and he had apparently requested Hopper's assistance in the lab months before. So when she finally arrived, the first thing he said to her was, where have you been? And then he pointed at the Mark I and was like, there's the machine. Compute the coefficients of the arctangent series by next Thursday. Well, hello. Nice to meet you. Yeah. (laughs) It was just like, oh, all right. That's cool. So the next year, she's working on the Mark II, which was obviously the Mark I's successor and also ran realistic test programs for the Navy. The difference here is that Hopper helped create the Mark II. And in comparison to the Mark I, it was much faster. So this is like a quote from Wiki that I pulled out because I was trying to figure out, like, rates and stuff. Mm -hmm. The Mark II's addition time was 0.125 seconds, or 8 hertz, and the multiplication time was 0.750 seconds. This was a factor of 2.6 times faster for addition and a factor 8 faster for multiplication compared to the Mark I. Okay. A little bit more badass. Yeah. Yeah. It was at this time that Hopper tried again to enlist in the regular Navy and was once again denied because she was 38 years old, and she... She's an old lady. She's a spinster at that point. 
at that point. Yeah. So she continued to serve in the reserves at Harvard University until 1949 and turning down a full professorship at Vassar College. So Vassar was like, please come back. Please be a professor. We're going to give you tenure. And she's like, no, I need to continue to serve. September 1947, a moth actually landed in one of the Mark II computer's mechanical relays. And that, like, messed up the system. So they had to remove the moth. And that's where the idea of debugging the computer Mm-hmm. comes from yeah so that that moth is actually at the smithsonian national museum of american history oh is it yeah oh that's so cool yeah <laughs> um and then that's just like a fun little like that's pretty silly it's like the the mosquito in the back of the car see now we're gonna have to explain the family guardian i mean that's fine how is our family guardian he's fine everything's good need okay. new sway bars on the front oh. and new real wheels an alignment. You want to explain it or should I? You can, you can go for it. <laughs> I don't really know where this mosquito came from, guys. Uh, it was, it like was in the car long before it became my car. Basically, a mosquito found its way in my dad's car. It was a Hyundai Elantra. It died behind the, the headrest of like the back seats and it stayed there intact uh, the only thing left there is the chitin from the exoskeleton and, like, two beady black eyes that have been petrified over the years. And it, it's a big mosquito. It's not, like, a little one either. No, it's it's enormous. The only – he doesn't have a name, but we do call him the family guardian because he's been there forever and he doesn't move. And this car has, like, you know, it might have some dents in it from when, like – Milano was driving it. Uh, you know, that car <laughs> is a good car. And I hope you're treating her well. She had it's to retire. Fine. She wasn't keeping up to my standards of going everywhere. I have a much busier lifestyle, much crazier lifestyle than Megan does. So I drove the car down to her and got one of my own. But he's a he's a good he's a good mosquito. He's kept us safe over the years and he's just jumped from family member to family member. He's like the mooshu to your family. Exactly. It's pretty great. Yeah. I mean I don't, I'm not a big it. fan of like bugs, but he's he's been good. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what the moth was to, to Hopper, I'm guessing. That's what I would equate it to, at least. <laughs> what was I saying? So, it's 1947. It's 1947. She moves on to become an employee of the Eckert Mockley Computer Corporation. And she's in Philly now. There you go. That's what's up. They're, they always end up in Philly. So, the Eckert Mockley Computer Corporation is famous for Univac, which was the first commercial computer produced in the United States. Hopper was on the team that helped develop it, and it was accepted by the United States Census Bureau for the census in 1951. It was the fifth machine built for the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, which was an agency of the United States government established after World War II by the U.S. Congress to foster and control the peacetime development of atomic science and technology. And then in 1952, it accurately predicted the outcome of the presidential election with just 1% of the sample size of the voting population. So everyone was like, Stevens is going to win! And Univac was like, nah, bitches, it's Eisenhower. And what do you know? Shit, that must have been a really big deal. Yeah, it was like, oh, we didn't <laughs> we didn't know a computer could do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In 1952, she's appointed as lieutenant commander. So she's continuing to go up in the ranks, even in the reserves. While she's at the Eckerd Mockley Labs, Hopper believed that computer languages can be written in English. And everyone thought she was insane because normally computer programs are written in assembly language and 
machine code, all of which were not human friendly. So if you, you, t- you took some coding, right? <laughs> uh, a little, a little, a bit. little bit. Uh, and you know how like some those commands were like, you can do like a backslash and then do something like addition or mathematician and like the computer would know kind of because you're writing yes. it in English and it yeah. understands that. So beforehand it wasn't like that. You would have to know the specific language that this computer was programmed in and it was not intuitive at all. And she was like, no, work smarter, not harder, guys. This is fine. And everybody was like, I don't think that's possible. Stop being weird. And she's like, nope. We can, we can do this. So people were resistant to the idea that programmers could tell a computer what to do in plain English and then have the computer follow these instructions. She still went on to create a working com- like compiler to get her language to work. So I have a quote here that says, nobody believed that. She said, I had a running compiler and nobody would touch it. They told me computers could only do arithmetic. So the compiler that she did was known as the A compiler, and its first version was A-0. She wrote, like, chunks of machine code on magnetic tape, and those chunks were called a subroutine and performed a specific action. She gave each of these routines a call number written in English, and she says, All I had to do was to write down a set of call numbers, let the computer find them on the tape, and bring them over and do the additions. This was the first compiler. So she was like, yeah, it it was really just like, these chunks under this name, if I say jump, you're going to do this specific action. And then you're going to add it to me telling you to also hula hoop. I don't know. I don't really know the best. No, no, no. no. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, and after people understood what it was that she was doing, it was then that Hopper was named the company's first director of automatic programming. And this department released some of the first compiler-based programming languages. So this included the Mathematic uh, which was a m- more like math based, and then the Flowmatic, which was the first full English like data processing language, and also had a strong influence on COBOL, which is the next language that she helped create. So, in 1957, she's promoted to a full commander, and in 1959, there was a conference called CODASIL, which is short for Conference on Data Systems Languages, and she served as a technical consultant to the committee. Hopper helped define the new language, which pulled the English-based properties of the Flowmatic and also pulled some ideas from IBM's Flowmatic equivalent, Comtran. So she was pulling from other companies to, like, make this, like, this hybrid baby. And it was called COBOL, so C-O-B-O-L. And it is the most widely used business language to this day, like one of them. Oh, okay. That's cool. 1967 to 1970, she was called back into active duty afterwards to work with the Defense Department to standardize the kinds of computers and programming languages used. Basically, she's setting industry standards. So not super sexy, but it's super important that these things are set because if they're not set, things are not done consistently, and then you have issues. Yeah, that way everyone's on the same page. Right. In 1971, she retires from the Navy as a commander, except... The next year, she was asked to come out of retirement. (laughs) So much for that quiet life. Yeah. She's like, yeah, I'll do it. Let's do this. I'm coming back. So she continues to do the standardization and project management. And at this point, she's in, what, like her late 60s, early 70s? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she was born in like 18, like early 1800. Or no, early 1900. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, 1973, she was promoted to captain. And then 1983, she was promoted to commodore. So, that's 10 years later, by special presidential appointment. So, 
Yeah. Somebody saw the 60 Minutes bit that was done on her, and they were like, I like her. Let's promote her to a thing. Let's let's get her further further down the line. Wait, so the, the 60 Minutes TV program. Yeah. There, there have been two segments based off of her. So there was one. I don't remember when the first one was done. That's so crazy. Yeah. It's, yeah, she's insane. And she's such a character. I think I'm going to link to a video on YouTube and hope that it doesn't somehow infringe on copyright. No, 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 no. We're just directing to it. Yeah, it's so crazy. The way that she talks, the way that she carries herself, like she's a leader and you don't want to mess with her. Like she, you want her to be in a higher position and people recognize that about her. So, and I'll, I'll let me go through the timeline and we'll go through all of the, all the awards she's gotten in her life. Nice. Yeah, she's very recognized, which is nice. Yeah, it's, it's nice to go over women that like get recognition while they're alive and not after they've died yeah yeah oh my god yeah so she she knows she's kicking butt 1985 she is finally appointed to rear admiral and between that and the time that she like finally retires a second time there's like this one specific like segment that was taken of her that people think of her the most and she's explaining nanoseconds to a bunch of like naval leaders and military leaders and she was asked a lot why it took so long to send things out keep in mind this is the 1980s she had to explain nanoseconds and like time and like like how far it had to travel to go from like where she was to the satellite and back to where it needed to go okay for those relays yeah she she did like a visual demonstration she got tired of people asking her that so she started out handing out like pieces of wire that were like 11.8 inches and that was the distance that light travels in one nanosecond and she was careful to tell her audience that the length of her nanoseconds was like the maximum speed that it could travel through the space vacuum and that it had to go more slowly because of the length that it was going from like earth to those satellites mm-hmm. so after that like her, her famous talk about like nanoseconds and why people should just chill the fuck out and be patient um she retires a second time from the Navy as a rear For realsies. For realsies. And then she's hired as a senior consultant to Digital Equipment Corporation. She was originally just given the job, but she wanted to go through the whole hiring process. So she's like, no, I'm, I want to go through the interview. I want to, like, do this right. And she's very, like, honorable. I just imagine, like, that might maybe, like, a barbecue pool party. She's, like, munching on a little hamburger, taking nibbles, and the guy's next to her, and it's like... All right, well, you can come in on Monday, actually. We'll have an office set up for you and everything. We'll get the nameplate ready. And yeah, it'll be great to have me. Which is, no, no, you really, you actually, you can't just do that. I have to, <laughs> just, I just imagine her standing there going, like, you can't do that. You have to hire me. And be like, well, I mean, I guess we can, but you're in. You have the job. You can have the office next to me. Yeah. <laughs> that's not, that's not how she liked to work for her stuff. She liked to put herself forward and like, there's there's a quote i don't know i didn't know if i was gonna put it in but basically she said that like being a woman you kind of had to really fight a little harder so you had to keep doing the same thing consistently you had to do it at least three times you had to succeed in the same thing at least three times before somebody realized that it wasn't just like luck or it wasn't just like the right time in the right place like it wasn't just a coincidence it was her hard work 
Yeah, when Rosa was like, oh, look, I just got a $20,000 grant from the government. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just yeah. got lucky. Like, no, people, you put that work no. in. There's yeah, a, yeah, that shit does not just effort. drop into your lap. Mm-hmm. Um, So she's given the job, and then she's, she, basically, she's also working on standardization and industry forms and things like that. But she continues to work she never stops working she's in that position until the age of 85 where she she dies in 1992 and she dies in her sleep so nothing like super awful she just is like peace out guys and she's buried at the arlington national cemetery oh my god that's such a crazy time span to be alive to be born in like what you said 1908 i think 1906 yeah to see like the onset of fucking electricity and industrialization in the country and fucking plumbing being standardized across the nation and then even like the highway systems yeah like she got to see this country grow yeah that's such a dynamic period to like be alive Mm -hmm. and then crap out while cheers is coming to an end on tv (laughs) I mean, she she saw it all now. She doesn't need anything past 1992. It's fine. Could you imagine if she were alive today? I Yeah, it just, yeah, to hit smartphones and everything. I mean, that's she, such a, oh, a man, wide. She, she would hate smartphones. She's She would hate smartphones. She was pragmatic. She was kind of old school. They were, I, I, she wouldn't exactly have called herself a feminist, honestly, if I'm, if I'm being honest with myself. She, there's like a, like a little clip of her going, it's actually in the 60 seconds where she retires and takes the, the private job, the private sector job. Uh, it was the second segment they did. And they were like, she doesn't really think of herself as a feminist. She doesn't think women should stand beside men in combat and battle. Like they shouldn't be in war. So, like, she was still slightly old-fashioned. So, like, I imagine today seeing what we have today, seeing the smartphone, seeing what our technology is used for, she would absolutely hate it. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. But she put wheels in motion, and she, like, it developed a new, whole new way of programming computer languages and computer programming. So she earned nine military awards and she has many other awards so i'm gonna go through it i'm just gonna go through the wiki list because there's a lot going on here yeah give me the list the list was awarded the society women engineers achievement award in recognition of her significant contributions to the burgeoning computer industry as an engineering manager and originator of automatic programming systems 1994 inducted into the national women's hall of fame 1996 the uss hopper was launched so there's a ship named after her. Oh, that's pretty cool. 2001, a guy named Evan Boland wrote a poem dedicated to her titled Code. So we have poets, like, talking about her. 2009, the Department of Energy's National Energy Research Scientific Computing Center named its flagship system Hopper. 2009, Office of Naval Intelligence creates the Grace Hopper Information Services Center. 2013, Google made the Google Doodle for her. So she has a Google Doodle for her 107th birthday. 2016, she's posthumously awarded a Presidential Medal of Freedom. 2017, Hopper College at Yale University was named in her honor. So they changed an entire college in the university after her name. 
Oh, that's so cool. On top of that, 40 honorary degrees. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. And 13 places building streets have been named after her. And then three programs, we're not done, have been named after her. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there's more. There's more. Um, there was... Microsoft Corporation formed an employee group called Hoppers and established a scholarship in her honor. 2015, one of the nine competition fields at the first robotics competition world championship is named for Hopper. And then a professorship in Yale University was named in her honor. And then she's in a kid's video game called Class Hero. What? She, like, if you get to a certain level... You can, like, play her in a card game, I think. She's also, like, there's a comic book character named after her as well. So there's this guy named Gene Lewin Yang who created a comic book called Secret Coders. And the main character's name is Hopper Grace Who or Gracie Who. Comic book character is named after her, dude. <laughs> like, what? And then, finally, the Grace Hopper Celebration of Women in Computing. And it's really just there to help with research and career interests of women who are in her field. Oh my goodness, that sounds like such a great resource to have. It's insane. And I think she, at this point, is probably the most distinguished and awarded person we have done so far. I mean, hey, yo, the Empress of fucking France showed up on Rose's door. No, I mean, both of our ladies were well recognized, which is nice to hear, because we were getting kind of Kind of sad. Last episode, Christina, I mean, she had a retrospective when she was in her early 40s. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, like... She, yeah, you're Grace. She's a heavy hitter this episode. Yeah. We have heavy hitters. That's great. All right. Well, Milena, thank you for telling me about Grace Hopper. And I think I understood a good bit of the computer stuff you were throwing at me. So... Yeah. I yeah, try that's to make good. it as... as uh layman as possible yeah some of the, the more technical stuff that just i it's gonna go right over my head yeah all right Milena, so if people want to see more about the work that grace did and to find a link to that video and to see the artwork that rosa did where can they go so we have a website it's myfavoritefeminist.com we also have instagram and facebook under my favorite feminists and you can listen to us on stitcher tune in spotify and itunes if you are listening to us on itunes please rate and subscribe and also let us know in the comment section below if you can earn an honorary degree in anything what would it be megan what are you thinking you know what i want an honorary degree in sea urchin eating i don't think that's a degree megan i you know what i'm making this shit up i can make it whatever <laughs> i want and sea urchins are fucking disgusting actually yeah the one time you and i tried sea urchin it was bad i've tried them twice and i i'm willing to try anything i'm a terrible vegetarian <laughs> and sea urchin just looks like a little tongue a little yellow tongue that should be inching across my plate, leaving a slimy trail <laughs> in its wake. And the oh, second time, God. I was at a really good sushi place. And I was like, you know what? If this place has shitty sea urchin, it's the sea urchin that I don't like. And I got it. And I tried it. And I was like, nope, this is still terrible. I don't like this. And it's one of the few foods that I absolutely hate. But to overcome my hatred, I would need an honorary degree to overcome that barrier. I'll make you up in a 
I'll make you up a degree. I'll like design one for you and print it and frame it. You better. You better be flexing those Photoshop skills. Damn straight. That's the only thing I use it for anyway. All right. What about yours? What would your honorary degree Um, be in? I would want to earn my sexology degree. So not that one. What about honorary cat speaker, talker, translator? Honorary cat translator? Yeah. I dig it. Yeah. I know my cats. I know what they want to say to me. You be like the new cat whisperer, but you walk in. And you're like, what's the problem here? And the cat tells you. And you look at the human, and you're just like, really? Wet food from China? And you wonder why she pisses on your shoes. <laughs> An actual cat translator, a cat yeah. whisperer, and not Jackson Galaxy. But we're not getting into that. You're throwing some shade down. I don't know. I He's am. big. We're not. I don't. I don't care. So we've got an honorary cat translator and an honorary sea urchin eater. Yeah, best friends forever. Why not? Why not? Honestly, it's they're probably just as useful as our degrees right now. So it's okay. Fine. Yo, you take that shit back about my ceramics degree. <laughs> All right. So once again, if you've made it this far, God bless us. We really appreciate you guys. It's really sweet and it's awesome. Thank I thought you. only Milana's mom would be listening. But it's not just her. It's not. It's not. It's not. So until next time, have a good one, guys. Bye. Bye.